Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Happy to be bringing you another episode of my favorite podcast, and hopefully yours as well. There's been a lot of drama uh, since we last spoke in the poker world, and I want to uh, get into it a little bit as far as what went on with uh, YouTube sensation Catherine Catrific Valdez uh, at Bally's in Las Vegas, which, by the way, is the scene of the crime that I've been talking about for the last few weeks. Yes, in fact, Bally's is the hotel where I was staying at the time uh, that I was burglarized. So I'm not surprised that something shady happened at Bally's, which uh, to me is the lowest level of Harris properties that you can ever find. Uh, I'll definitely never stay there again myself, and I don't think that I would play in their circuit event. So basically, there's a $1,700 buy-in circuit event, and you guys have probably heard this story, but uh, social media starlet Catherine Valdez, a.k.a. Catrific, uh, had bought into a $400 no-limit event that was happening at the same time. Uh, she was told at the time, according to her, that she would be receiving 15000 in tournament chips when she arrived at her table. So she goes to the wrong table in the wrong tournament and gets the wrong amount of chips, uh, proceeds to play for several hours, even busting a few people out and amassing a very large stack in this championship event. And... Uh, figures out at some point that uh, she's in the wrong tournament. So at that point, she did not speak up because according to her, she was worried that people would say, there's nothing we can do about it now, or worse yet, it's just going to cause a whole lot of trouble trying to piece together what should have happened in that tournament. So for whatever reason, uh, she admits that she did not speak up after realizing that a mistake had been made. So I think for all of us, uh, that's enough for most poker players to say she did the wrong thing. Um, She doesn't play a a ton of poker. She's not exactly a a staple at Bally's Las Vegas in the poker room or anywhere on the tournament circuit for that matter. Um, So it is conceivable that It was an honest mistake at some point. But once she realized what happened, uh, it was kind of on her to say, hey, uh, a mistake has been made. I'm here at the wrong table. What's incredible to me is that this sort of thing ever happens. I feel like every tournament I've ever played in, the dealer took my receipt, checked my ID, made sure I had the right table. I, I mean, it's just hard to believe. But this has actually happened before. I remember a year or two ago in a high roller at the Aria, somebody had bought into a $125 tournament and ended up playing in a 25K and busting some of the top names in the poker world. Um, 
and that player is not allowed uh, back at Aria at all now. So uh, that seemed like the punishment didn't fit the crime in that case. Of course, they call in the suits to give a quote when stories like this break. And, you know, Jack Effel, who's uh, always the consummate, the spokesperson, uh, saying all the right things and, and kind of handling things with his way. Uh, he mentions that players should understand that if, if they are in this position, it's impossible for them to get paid. So if Catherine had finished playing in this event and, say, gotten, say, third place, she wouldn't have gotten the money because at the time when you try to cash out, they check your player's card against the registrants for that tournament, which is a process that I've gone through uh, every time I've ever cashed in any Harris property tournament at any level. So I know for a fact that he's telling the truth about that. And had had she continued in the tournament, it just would have been a waste of time for her and everyone else because any prize money that she might have collected would never have gone into her hands. Now, of course, we can question whether she knew that or not and whether she realized the magnitude of her mistake, whether she realized that what she's doing amounts to cheating. Uh, you know, that's up to you, dear listener. You can make up your own mind about that. I don't know this person. I'm not going to judge her in that way. Uh, but I do think that personally, if I ever noticed that I was uh, not where I was supposed to be in any casino situation, I would speak up because I just know there are cameras everywhere. A lot of people get banned for a lot of reasons, and I wouldn't want to jeopardize uh, my livelihood or my eligibility to play in events such as the World Series of Poker um, just by allowing a mistake like that to happen. To me, it's kind of uh, equivalent to, but actually worse than, if you get a seat assignment and then you realize that you're supposed to be at a certain table and you notice that that seat is about to pay the big blind and the big blind ante. So you kind of pretend that you don't know where you're going and you, you know, maybe act a little bit lost for a while, hoping that somebody else ends up having to pay that big blind so that you can get a free orbit. Um, that's also not cool. And I hate when I see players doing that mostly because I'm a trained actor. And when I see someone who's a bad actor trying to act confused, uh, it's annoying. I will say, though, the poker community as a whole has been extremely hard on this young lady, um, assuming that she was angle shooting, assuming that she knew she was cheating uh, and really being very hard on her. Uh, also, I will have to say that, according to her, the floor supervisor person who spoke with her, someone named Michael, the unknown Michael uh, guy in a tie that came over and. Uh, chastised her for what she had done. According to her, he was belligerent and rude and disrespectful and all of that, you know, which kind of, I don't know, to me that, that rubs me the wrong way. It reeks of, doesn't he know who I am? I have 600,000 YouTube followers, uh, which is really not the uh, tone you want to have when you're the one who has done something wrong. That said, uh, there are many times when I've played in casinos where the staff treats me like a criminal, even when I haven't done anything wrong. So I can only imagine how some of these guys would behave if they did suspect me of cheating. And I don't think it would be particularly friendly, nor should it, but uh, she may have a point there uh, at the end of the day. Still, be that as it may, that's not where she should be uh, spending her energy focusing on that. She should be 
uh, doing the Mea Culpa tour, letting everyone know, you know, I, I was aware that I was in the wrong tournament, but I thought the best thing to do was just to stay in it because at that point I thought it was too late to do anything about it. And uh, I realize now that that was wrong and I apologize and nothing like this will ever happen again. Please accept my apology, poker world, and, you know, treat me as one of your own. Uh, other, otherwise, you just seem like you're, yeah, I tried to cheat. And also the guy was mean to me. Yeah. So that's not the right thing to say, Catherine. So enough about that. I want to get into something that's a little bit more fun. Um, many of you know David Tuckman. He is, uh, you know, he's on Poker Go. He's been doing for many years kind of the uh, commentary for all the final tables throughout the World Series of Poker. He also does quite a bit of stuff for 888 Poker and uh, Stone's Gambling Hall, if I'm not mistaken. He's got his hand in a lot of uh, poker stuff. Well, Suddenly, within the last year or two, my dear friend, Mr. Tuckman, has started to fancy himself. Oh, I just remembered he's actually been a guest on this program a few weeks ago. So go back and listen to that, if you will, where he talks about how he is uh, doing sports betting videos for Stone's Gambling Hall, uh, which I think is funny because I never knew him to be some sort of sports gambling expert. So as you know, baseball season is now in full swing. A few weeks ago, Tuckman posted... Uh, that he was looking for people that wanted to take the over on the Orioles. Uh, now, I'm from Maryland. I love the Orioles. Uh, they have a historically low uh, season win total number in the uh, books in Vegas at 59. I saw 58. I saw 59 and a half. It's in that range. Uh, no team has ever opened with a season low lit win total so low in history. So, Tuckman wants to take the under, and I can't resist. Uh, I say, look, I'm in. Uh, he and I end up making, um, I don't want to say the amount, but let's just say it's a, it's a substantial wager that if either of us loses this bet, which one of us will, <laughs> because there's a half, a half game involved, uh, it, it's going to hurt. So uh, we put on we put an amount on this that it's uh, it's a friendly wager, but it's almost not a friendly wager. And uh, in the meantime, legendary poker announcer Norman Chad, who's also from Maryland, wanted to get on the act. I believe that he and Tuckman have a much smaller bet as well. But what's been happening, if you're not following us all on Twitter, pretty much every day. As the Orioles win or lose, there is trash talk from either Mr. Tuckman or Mr. Chad. And then I chime in with my two cents as I see fit. Uh, it's kind of fun. I'm hoping that the Orioles will win more than 58 and a half games this season. And then I will collect on my bet, as will Mr. Chad. And Mr. Tuckman is hoping that the Orioles lose... Uh, 104, I think, whatever it is. They play 162 games. You do the math. Uh, he wants the Orioles to be awful again like they were last year. Uh, so I know we're not going to talk about baseball too much on this podcast, but it's kind of interesting to me that uh, a lot of people have been following the drama, and it's only week one of the Major League Baseball season, but a lot of people are kind of interested in how this all shakes out, especially with the amount of uh, good-natured trash-talking that's been going on around this bet. 
Uh, so it should be fun. I kind of joked with him the other day that I hope to have this locked up by the All-Star break. Uh, not exactly holding my breath on that one. But the Orioles are off to a good start, so we'll wait and see uh, how that all pans out for me. Okay, now let's get into... Uh, let's continue our coverage of the final table from last year's World Series of Poker main event. Now, guys, I know uh, you probably prefer to hear me talk about hands that I played myself, that I'm in the casino. I didn't play this week. I've been doing tons of comedy. Um, I've even been working on a film um, that I helped write. So uh, things are busy for me in my entertainment career, but I've still been keeping up with uh, poker on Tournament Poker Edge. And doing tons of studying as I prepare, not only for this summer, but actually uh, in two weeks, I'll be down in Florida for the big uh, million-dollar guarantee at uh, the Hard Rock in Fort Lauderdale. So I am very much invested in poker right now, and I've been going over the uh, final table from last year's main event with a fine-tooth comb, and I want to continue our discussion of that Today, So we're going to stay on the 300,000, 600,000 level. This is the final table. There are only eight players remaining. Uh, your chip leader is Michael Dyer, as it's basically been Michael Dyer for the last three days of this tournament. Uh, second in chips is Mr. Nick Mannion, who we discussed last time around. So these two guys uh, have pretty much all the chips in the tournament at this point. Um they're first and second in chips, and no one's really even close. Uh, Mannion has about $90 million, and the next biggest stack is John Sin with like $52 million. It's been a bit unusual in the sense that typically when you have two big stacks and a bunch of short stacks, or relatively short stacks, at a final table, those two big stacks will tend to avoid each other or play each other cautiously. Uh, the case of Michael Dyer is an interesting one because he has been such a big stack bully, um, really pushing everyone around, including Nick Mannion, that uh, it really seems that he's gotten so far out of line that someone needs to take a stand. And yet, as you watch this final table, if you review these hands, you see players folding very reasonable hands when Michael Dyer opens because they just don't want to get in front of the steamroller when other players are about to bust out. Uh, people are much more concerned about climbing that the ladder, laddering up, climbing the pay jumps, however you want to say it, than they are about actually winning the tournament, which is fine. I mean, look, there's a ton of money um, at stake. I mean, the difference between seventh place and fifth place is like over a million dollars. So it's, I understand like why they're, why they're doing that. But at the same time, at some point, don't you want to compete for this bracelet? Uh, if you keep letting this guy accumulate all the chips now, it's just going to be that much more unlikely that you will end up winning the tournament and being the champion. So I don't know. I have never made the main event final table. Um, you guys know what I've done. I've gotten you know, relatively close, but not really there. I don't know that I would be as cautious I, I like to think that I would take a stand against someone who's literally opening 80% of the pots, which it appears to me that Michael Dyer is. Uh, so in this spot, two folds to Nick Mannion. He's got an ace of spades, queen of clubs. Uh, he's got a giant stack. He makes it $1.5 which is a little bigger than 
what players have been making it at this table. I don't hate it. I actually like it. Um, I feel like he's in relatively early position. He's only got ace queen. He doesn't mind taking it down. And he wants to price himself in more easily if one of the short stack shoves. Like, there's a lot of reasons why you might make a slightly bigger open. Uh, but it's notable because it's pretty much been 1.2, 1.3 the whole time at this table. Now, all of a sudden, he brings it out with 1.5, which I don't think he would do with uh, not a top 10 or 15 hand. So he kind of reveals that he really has something. Although I think everyone will put him on having something when he raises from early position anyway. Nick Mannion hasn't been a tricky type. He's not really gotten out of line, particularly from out of position. Uh, Folded to Mr. Dyer. I don't want to tell you what Michael Dyer had until the end, um, but he puts in a three bet. So Dyer in the cutoff makes it 3.7. and then the action folds all the way back to Nick Mannion holding ace-queen. Now, Dyer has been a royal thorn in Mannion's side uh, since this final table started. Um, it, he hasn't been afraid of the other big stack. and If anything, it, it appears to me uh, as though Dyer uh, had a, a message that he was trying to send. Like, look, I'm not afraid of you or anyone else at this table. I'm going to be the table captain. I'm going to open all the pots. I'm going to take the lead in all the pots. Now, to me, when it folds back to me, if I'm in Mannion's shoes, to me, this is a four bet. Uh, you're out of position with ace-queen. You don't really want to call. Your hand is uh, so far ahead of Dyer's three betting range. Um, if you've been paying any attention at all to this final table, he's just been so out of line in so many instances. And I'd like to put in a big three bet a uh, big four bet rather, excuse me, and take it down. Um, but just in case he decides to flat, I've got an ace queen, which is a playable hand, even though I'll be out of position against the other chip leader. I think calling just pretty much sets me up to uh, have a lot of guesswork later in the hand. Like what happens if I don't flop an ace or a queen? Am I supposed to check and fold to the most aggressive, loosest player I've ever met? Uh, I don't think so. That wouldn't be a good strategy. But at the same time, do I want to check and call three times with just ace high if I never get anything? That's probably not a winning strategy either. I don't like... So Mannion decides to call with ace queen, and I really don't like this play at all. I think what it does is it puts you in that position where you're not going to have to be guessing against a talented professional player when you're out of position. And everything has been going right for Michael Dyer for the last three days. His confidence is so high. He's probably going to be able to outplay you on his worst day, but he's actually been having his best day for the last three days. So you don't want to be out of position with ace-queen against a guy like that who's feeling good and playing great and basically in position to win the main event. So I really don't like the call, and I think that there's a really strong case to be made for four-betting. The case to be made for calling, if there is one, is that he can kind of slow play if he hits an ace or a queen on the flop and maybe trap Dyer and use his aggression against him. So that's fine, but first you have to flop an ace or queen, which isn't easy to do. Um, It also helps Mannion protect his stack until he waits for the short stacks to bust out. And this is where I think players take the idea 
of the independent chip model ICM too far. Yes, there are several very short stacks at the table, but by four betting, I'm not exactly jeopardizing my own stack. Uh, I'm I'm inflating the pot with what is, in all likelihood, uh, the best hand against a player that three bets way too much. So you don't. What does Dyer want me to do? He probably doesn't want me to four bet, and that's a reason to four bet. So instead, he flats. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of you agree with the flat. I don't feel like people four bet enough nowadays, kind of in general. And I think that uh, most players are way too concerned with. ICM considerations, and they're not thinking about trying to win the world championship, uh, which is what the main event bracelet is, you know, for better or for worse, widely considered to be. So, for all those reasons, I think Mannion should four bet, but he doesn't. He flats, and now we're going to see a flop. It comes not a Jack nine five, so Jack nine five with two hearts, the Jack of Hearts and five of Hearts. Now, uh, we're first to act. Nick Mannion is first to act, holding the ace of spades, queen of clubs. So he has no pair, no draw. He has two over cards to the board. Um, If I had played pre-flop the way Mannion did, uh, my strategy on this flop would probably be mostly checking and folding. Um, I know that feels very weak to some of you. Uh, There are some cards that would help my hand on the turn, notably a 10 uh, would give me an open ender to go along with my two over cards. Um, I just I don't like this flop for continuing with ace queen because other than a 10 or you know maybe a king, I don't really know what I'm hoping to pick up on the turn to give me more equity. And if my opponent has a heart, which I don't. A lot of the cards that can help me might even give him a flush or at least a flush draw that he can then play too aggressively for me to be able to really go to war with my ace high. Um, there are a lot of flops that I would love to continue on. Uh, maybe it's something like Jack 5-5 five five or uh, you know anything with a gut shot like Jack 10, Deuce, you know, stuff like that even if I don't have... Uh, the right suits, I think that that's fine to continue. But the problem with calling pre-flop is now you put yourself in a position where you have to check and then figure it out when you flop like this. Um, As I said before, I don't like being in that position against a player who's probably better than I am to begin with and is also feeling so good and so confident with his chip lead that he's had for three days, basically. Uh, He's probably not going to make as many mistakes as I would need him to in order to make calling profitable. So uh, Mannion could check raise. I wouldn't hate a check raise on this board, which would be a total bluff. But because there are certain cards like a king or a 10 that would give me more outs, uh, there is a case to be made for uh, check raising the flop, planning to continue uh, with another barrel on the turn if one of those uh, helpful cards hits. But I don't think that um, Mannion thinks that way about poker. I think that he wanted to uh, secure his place in second chip position and hope to hit an ace or a queen on the flop. Uh, So he does check it over to Michael Dyer. So Dyer bets $2.8 million into the $9.1 million pot. So it's less than a third of the pot size 
offering better than four to one uh, on a call. So before I said you probably have to check and fold, but I think if my opponent chose such a small sizing, I would probably go ahead and take one off. Ace queen is probably good a lot. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I might be able to pick up equity on the turn. Uh, Dyer may even give up on the turn if it's a if it's a brick. And I check, you know, having called the flop, he might give up and not. You know, he doesn't have to go three barrels with all of his bluffs every time. He doesn't play that way. Um, just when he thinks it's profitable to do so, he's a very good player, and he's he's not making a lot of mistakes at this final table. And he seems to be one of the two players. Uh, himself and John Sin are really the only two at this table that are playing for the win, as far as I can tell from observing their play. So with that said, I would call, and uh, Mannion actually chooses to call as well. Now, I don't know how much the sizing had to do with that or how much it's just a question of, look, I got involved in this pot with a good hand, ace-queen, and I'm not about to give up on it now. So they call, and now we see a turn, which is the king of clubs, which doesn't uh, increase anybody's flush possibilities at all. Uh, so now we have a board of a Jack nine five with two hearts, and then a king of clubs on the turn. So with fourteen point eight million in the pot, Mannion chooses to check again. Which I like this play. I don't see any reason to lead this card. Um, even if it gave me the nuts, I don't think I would bet it. You might as well check to the aggressive player, and then put in the check raise. Uh, if you know, suppose you had queen 10 or something like that. Uh, if we somehow got here with queen 10, I think that would be the play there. I don't really think I would have a lot of, uh, leads on the turn, regardless of what hit in Mannion's shoes. I think checking is fine. And Dyer, uh, does put in another bet into 14.8 million. He bets only 4.3 million. Now, I know this is a trend right now, guys. I know everybody's down betting. Everything is small, and everyone's pricing everyone in. Uh, I don't really like this sizing uh, from Dyer, regardless of what he has. I don't think it's uh, a, a useful bet size, especially when we're so deep. You know, if he has a really strong hand, he should be betting bigger to try to get more more money. <laughs> and if he has a bluff, he probably should be betting bigger to have more fold equity. I mean, betting so small into an opponent who already called you once, I think is a is a bad play. Now, I've been mostly extremely complimentary of Michael Dyer, but I think that offering my opponent such attractive pot odds is a mistake here if I'm bluffing, and I could get more if I'm value betting. So I'm just not a fan of this sizing, but it is the sizing he makes, and he can't know this, but it's actually the perfect sizing to put Mannion to a decision. Now, it's only because Mannion has ace-queen. So ace-queen has a little bit going on. I've got a gut shot. I've got an ace that might be good. I've got a queen that might be good. Uh, it's it's not a very strong holding for the situation, but given the attractive pot odds, it might be worth calling because sometimes my hand will actually be good when my opponent has something like 8 7 that flopped a double gutter. You know, there are some hands that I can beat with just my ace high unimproved. And given these attractive pot odds, it only cost me uh, 4.3 to call and win 19 and a half million. So I think with ace queen, 
I would I would probably fold or raise, but Mannion calls and I really don't hate it. Let's explore the idea of using this card as a check raise opportunity. Um, we have a queen, so it's less likely that Michael Dyer has the absolute nuts right now, which would be queen 10. Uh, it is possible that Dyer three bet pre-flop with a really strong hand like pocket jacks or pocket kings, maybe even pocket nines, and we could be up against a set. Otherwise, I think we're mostly dealing with bluffs and marginal made hands that uh, don't really want to build a big pot. I mean, look at the sizing. He is betting so small on every street uh, other than pre-flop where his, uh, I guess his three bet sizing was pretty standard. But since then, the bet sizing have has been tiny. Um, it just doesn't feel like my opponent has a monster. And because I can easily have queen 10 here, uh, and because it feels like he doesn't have a monster himself, I think check raising and finally putting my foot down against this big stack bully, uh, I kind of have the perfect hand to do it. I'm not saying that you have to take every spot that poker offers, but this has gone on long enough, Michael Dyer. I would put in uh, maybe like another $12 million on top and see how he feels about that, knowing that I definitely have outs to the nuts, some number of outs to the nuts, at least three of the four tens give me the nuts, and other rivers may be good enough uh, to win the pot as well. So... That would be my play here, but Mannion takes the conservative route, and I think we've already discussed why he might do that. So the river comes, and it is the Eight of Diamonds, which does not complete anything. <laughs> it's uh, it's not a flush card. It doesn't really... Well, actually, the 7-6 got there, if somebody happened to have that. So it does, it's not a completely innocuous card. Um, and Mannion, who has been pretty much passive since he opened this pot initially, uh, checks once again and now into 23.5 million. Dyer bet 6.5. So again, it's a small bet. Um it just doesn't feel like a bluff. Uh, so in this in this spot, holding ace queen. Now that I've checked and called the flop and the turn, uh, I still only have ace high. I'm getting well. There's thirty million in the pot now, so I'm getting about five to one on a call, which is you know pretty attractive. You only have to be good here about. 17.5% of the time or whatever it is. Uh, it's just too marginal for me. Uh, in in Mannion's shoes, I would really be kicking myself uh, because I never took any aggressive action up until this point. And there's a case for check raise bluffing this river. Um I don't know. I think the turn was the spot for that. I, if you told me you want to do it, I wouldn't mind. Um, I just don't like calling here. I think it's a fold 
I, I think I would typically fold in this spot unless I really had a read. Uh, Mannion actually calls and pays it off, um, which I guess he was just sucked in by the curiosity of it all. No hand really made sense. Um, if you're following along at home, you might be interested to know that in this case, uh, Michael Dyer had the ace-king offsuit with the ace of hearts. So he flopped uh, two over cards with a backdoor flush draw and made a pair on the turn and just got value on all three streets. His ace-king was beating uh, Nick Mannion's ace-queen all along. And that's how that hand went down. I found that one very interesting. Uh, a lot of lessons to be learned in that in that pot. Maybe you shouldn't take a uh, a passive approach against an aggressive opponent. Uh, I, I have said on previous episodes that I feel like I've made a lot of money in tournament poker by checking and calling over the years against aggressive opponents. But I think when you have something as strong as ace-queen pre-flop, and you don't want to be out of position post-flop with that kind of hand that really is... It's actually a better hand pre-flop than it's likely to be on the flop most of the time. So that's the time when you want to kind of seize the moment and and make your play. So you open. The most aggressive player ever re-raises. You have ace-queen. Don't stop raising yet. Uh, We now know that I would have lost a lot of chips on this pot because... Well, unless he folded to my check raise, which he may have, uh, even the wild guy could wake up with ace king once in a while. <laughs> so, of course, I would have lost uh, a lot of my chips on this hand in all likelihood. But obviously, that's not the way you should be looking at it. Um, we don't want to be results oriented, guys. Like, you want to think about what you should do uh, in the spot, not based on exactly what. Your opponent has. Of course, we all know that Michael Dyer doesn't have garbage in every single hand and that even the wildest player can wake up. But I think all things considered, Mannion made a lot of mistakes that he then compounded with more mistakes. And most of those mistakes were of the too passive variety. Okay, I want to go through one more hand, uh, maybe about... 45 minutes later, uh, the blinds have increased. They are now at 400,000, 800,000 with a 100,000 ante from each player. And we are still eight-handed at this final table. Now, at this point, uh, Michael Dyer is so far ahead of the pack. He's got about 138 million. And Nick Mannion, still in second place, by the way, with... 74 million. So Dyer's stack is almost twice that of the second place player. Meanwhile, just for reference, we have short stacks of 7 million and 10 million and 18 million still alive at this table. So the dynamic of people waiting for other people to bust is really starting to become exaggerated. Uh, For example, a few hands ago, Johnson opened from late position and two to his left, Tony miles folded ACE 10, uh, which normally you wouldn't fold a hand that strong to a late position open. You would three bet it or at least call on the button and see what happens. Uh, but because players are just trying to 
ladder up uh, to some extent. They're folding in spots where they might otherwise call. Uh, I did mention earlier that John Sin is not playing to ladder. He appears to be trying to win the tournament, and I think that this hand will demonstrate what I mean by that. So the action folds to Michael Dyer holding uh, Queen 10 of clubs. So, of course, he's going to open this pot. He is in the cutoff, and he makes it 1.6 million a min raise. Uh, Joe Cata folds on the button. Ara Metaliti folds a king seven of diamonds with like an M of uh, three, which, I mean, okay, that's fine. Listen to last week's episode to find out how I feel about Ara Metaliti. Uh, just fold faster, okay? So he finally gets out of the way and lets people that came to play play. And John Sin decides to make the call, getting uh, ridiculous odds from the big blind. And he's got nine, six of clubs. Oh, sorry, guys. Important point. Dyer has queen of clubs, ten of spades. Uh, I misread it here. Then uh, this is going to be important. So uh, it's a queen 10 off against nine, six of clubs. So Sin makes the call and now there is 4.4 million in the pot and the flop comes 10, eight, eight with two diamonds and one club. So Dyer has top pair and Sin has a gut shot and a backdoor flush draw. Dyer bets one point. 3 million into the 4.3 million pot and sin with his gut shot and backdoor flush draw decides to put in a check raise, which is kind of similar to what I thought Nick Mannion should have done about 45 minutes ago. Uh, It's just impossible that Dyer will continually be able to hang on every single time. He's playing so many pots. It's very hard to hit this flop, 10-8-8. We know that Dyer has a 10, uh, but Sin doesn't. And I really like this play. He makes it 2.75 million. And then Dyer, of course, calls with his top pair. Uh, The turn comes off, and it's a jack of hearts. There's 9.5 million in the middle, and Sin, who has check raised pre-flop uh, on the flop, is now first to act here on the turn. The Jack of Hearts gives him an open-ended straight draw. I mean, of course, he prefers to see a Jack of Clubs so he can have a nice little combo draw with this. Uh, as it stands, I think Sin uh, has a, a lot. There's a lot of merit if he decides to bet this card. He puts in 2.7 million into the 9.5 million pot. And uh, again, I'm going to say that I think this bet sizing is too small. Uh, it's not the bet that Sin would make if he had the hand he's pretending to have. I think almost all of us would bet at least 4 million with uh, an 8 or a full house or even a straight. Uh, it, fe- it, it serves more as a blocking bet. I mean, yeah, there's some chance that Dyer's going to fold. Uh, but if he called the check raise on the flop, he's calling this bet probably at least 80% of the time. 
Uh, he's, it's just too attractive. 2.7. Now there's 12.2 million in the pot. So whatever Dyer has, he's incentivized to call with it if he called with it on the flop, whether he has a flush draw or uh, a, whatever, open ender. Right, like if he had a jack nine, now he's got a pair of jacks uh, to go with his jack nine. I just don't know what hand can call the check raise on the flop and then fold on the turn for the same amount. It just doesn't really make sense to me. I think that players have gotten, generally, bet sizing is too small right now in tournaments. And part of it is nerves. I'm at the final table, the main event here. Uh, part of it is the fact that I don't want to screw up when three players are about to bust out. They're very short stacks still alive in this tournament. But if you're going to make a move, I think you need to make a move. And I know, we all know, that John Sin goes on to win this bracelet. <laughs> and But even the bracelet winner is not exactly infallible. And I'm not a fan of his sizing here. Although I do like check-raising this flop and getting after it. But then you really need to put pressure on on the next card. Uh, as long as Dyer doesn't raise, though, not all is lost because I still have uh, some chance of hitting a straight on the river, which, of course, at that point, I think we would see a big bet. So, yeah, of course, Dyer calls the 2.7 with his pair of 10s, which is no more, no longer a top pair. The board is 10.88 with, with a jack on the turn. Um, there's still a possible flush, the 10.8 of diamonds, on the flop, uh, we know that no player has a diamond. So anyway, uh, it's bet, call, and then the river is the tray of clubs. So Sin is left holding the nine high here. Uh, there's 14.9 million in the pot, and he has about 50 million in his stack. I should have mentioned earlier, Sin starts this hand with $58 million. I think I may have said that a few minutes ago when I was going over stack sizes. Um, but yeah, he now has to decide whether he wants to put in another barrel or is it more important for me to just preserve my stack and make sure that I at least ladder up to sixth place or whatever it's going to end up being after these next couple guys bust out with their short stacks. Uh, all that going on in Sin's mind and he tanks for maybe 45 seconds which for him is is pretty long and eventually checks which is a total white flag um, Dyer I'm sure was delighted when Sin gave up uh, so that he could just check and win with Queen 10 uh, having faced the pressure that he faced uh, I love the check raise on the flop I love everything about it. I think it's a great play. I think continuing on a jack that gave you an open ender is a great idea. I would have bet bigger, try to put more pressure. I mean, we're repping an eight, right? Uh, we would bet more with an eight. I'm almost sure of it. So I love the theory behind the play, but maybe not necessarily the execution. So I hope you guys are enjoying this, uh, <laughs> going over the final table hands with a fine tooth comb. I intend to keep doing this up until uh, we reach the winner. I won't be able to do as many hands later, but I think it's a little bit more interesting when you have all of the bubble dynamics, 
and everybody trying to ladder dynamics, like all of that stuff makes uh, big tournament final tables interesting to me. So I'm going to focus more when it's eight-handed, seven-handed, six-handed than I will. Maybe we'll talk about a couple of the heads-up hands in a later episode. But that's going to do it for this one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please let me know your thoughts. Check us out on iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Say some nice things if you don't mind. Uh, Check me out on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. Always great to hear from you guys. I love interacting with all of you about the episodes and about the hands we discuss and what you agree with, what you disagree with. Uh, I don't believe in living in an echo chamber. I want to know if you guys think that I'm wrong about something. It makes for good discussion, and maybe we can all learn something that way. So hit me up on Twitter, guys, at Clayton Comic, and do not hold back. Give me the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's going to do it for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge. I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Love nobody. Everybody.